hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Today it's a Martin and Brett act. So uh, Martin, uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us today. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, well, it's always nice to have a chat amongst ourselves and uh, well, we can chew the fat about a topic. And today we picked Corti, yes. which doesn't seem to change much i've got to be honest and we recognize it's a problem and we don't really seem to be able to get to grips with it and i was so a bit a bit struck by uh, a paper by uh, ex-colleagues of yours actually for Zugbar and colleagues uh, who talked mm. about barriers and enablers to implementing urinary tract infection prevention strategies it was talked about various different you know barriers what gets in the way what's what sort of stops us getting to the nub of Corti and why we aren't reducing it. So I'll mm. pick a few ideas off you first, Brett. What do you think? Well, I, I think, you know, we've had this conversation about HAP in the past too, but mm. it's a similar thing with Corti. If we go right back to the start, it's one of the most frequent healthcare-associated infections along with along with HAP, uh, pneumonia. And, uh, and yet it's probably one of those things that we don't spend a lot of time on. Um, and so then the first question is, well, why? And I would turn that argument around and say, well, why sh- why not? And, and, I, and I think there's three or so good reasons why we should be doing something about county. The first is, I alluded to it, it's frequent. So about one and a half percent of patients who get admitted to hospital will get a urinary tract infection, and we know the vast majority of those are catheter-associated. So mm-hmm. in the case of Australia, about 70,000 um, people a year are getting a UTI slash county in, uh, in hospital. And so extrapolate that out for whatever country you're in, but a, a truckload of people in, in, in essence. So it's very frequent. The second thing is it does have an impact. Uh, it may not have the impact in terms of a BSI, on, on things like morbidity and mortality. Mm. But it does have an impact. It has an impact for people who suffer the, uh, the challenges and indignities of having a UTI and, and pain and discomfort. And, of course, in older people, um, spins off a whole lot of other, uh, other risks um, and challenges too. It is associated with um, a, a, bit of, a bit of morbidity and mortality, and there's been some research on that too. And, it's associated a lot with antibiotic use, though, isn't it? I mean, it has a big yeah. impact on stewardship and, and antibiotic use, which that's right. drives resistance. Well, that's my third one, Martin. I'll get to that one. Uh, <laughs> no, the other, the other one I was going to mention about, about the impact, of course, is so it's frequent and it's impactful. The other reason I think it's impactful is because it, it, there are, again, research that says that it, it does increase people's length of stay in hospital. So mm. it has an impact for health services and for patients. And particularly when it's frequent, um, then it has a big impact for health service on the on the fact that it, it might just be a, a slight increase in length of stay by a day or two, but uh, but multiply that by a lot of people. So impact on health services. And uh, you're right, Martin. The third, I think, is uh, antimicrobial resistance. So these infections are getting more difficult to treat, so we need to find ways to prevent them from occurring in the first place. They Treating them takes a lot of antimicrobial use um, mm-hmm. uh, as well, which then, of course contributes to antimicrobial resistance. So I think there are three really good reasons why we should be doing something about county. And why haven't we been? Probably because we haven't articulated those three things very well in the past. 
Yeah, I mean, they're sort of frequent, but almost invisible because nobody ever gets any local data on it. So we mm. do you know, big prevalence studies, but actually, unless possibly in the critical care unit, we don't do a lot of surveillance on county. So a ward doesn't see what their rate might be. Mm. And I wonder if there's a, some almost a sort of an inevitability that people think, well, if we haven't a cast, therefore they're going to get a county. It's just one of those things. It's 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 a normal. It doesn't necessarily have to be, does it? Because there have yeah. been a few papers that suggest that actually you can reduce county with interventions that are quite practical, like meatal cleansing. I mean, I know you've done yeah. a systematic review on that one recently. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, yeah, I'll talk about that one for a moment. And then we can talk about some uh, some other uh, other ways to prevent them too from occurring. So, um, yeah, recently we had an uh, article published in um, BMJ Open. And um, what we're really interested in this, this paper is evaluating the latest evidence about uh, meatal cleaning, clean the urethral area prior to urinary catheter insertion. And we did this review, a systematic review, a few years ago now, and then there's been some interesting papers since that time. So we've re- re- redone the analysis, if you like. Mm. And um, it- it's interesting. The picture is is changing. So um, in this systematic review, um, there does seem to be some potential benefits for the use of antiseptics compared to non-antiseptics for meatal cleaning to prevent bacteria and or county. And I mean, we can debate the value of bacteria, which is just presence of the bacteria in the urine um, as, a, as an outcome measure, but still a lot of people with bacteria get treated with antibiotics. So we found there is some emerging uh, benefit there. And and specifically, there is also some, some emerging evidence around the use of chlorhexidine versus saline for meatal cleaning prior to catherine session. And that, that seems to have a, a, a reasonably... Uh, good effect as well at prior just prior to 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 catheter insertion so that's what that in a nutshell that's what that systematic review found there's a lot of challenges with doing these types of reviews because there's different definitions used and there's different products used um mm. and there's different quality of quality, quality studies so if you're interested in this topic then um i would encourage you to to have a read of that that particular publication a couple of the barriers also were that people were not actually following their own institutions guidelines or potentially their own institutions guidelines were not actually updated to reflect the most recent evidence base and even the national guidelines are not always updated frequently enough to meet the evidence mm. base so therefore how can we educate people if all of the guidelines are not necessarily as current as the most recent evidence starts to suggest it. it that's yeah, and, you know, it's a it's a big problem we have actually, and not just in infection control, uh, in other areas too. But um, it is a problem because we do rely on things like EPIC guidelines, CDC guidelines, HICPAC guidelines, and in Australia the NHMRC guidelines and various similar things. And a lot of the way in which we conduct our business is based on these guidelines. Um, and people are reluctant to go off on a limb and do something different because. In fact, that's what accreditation agencies will look at. That's what ex- external audits will look at. So um, it's a bit of a challenge. You know, there's a, there's a real need, I think, to have this concept of a living guideline um, for infection control for key issues so that as evidence emerges, it gets updated. We had um, Associate Professor Julian Elliott and Dr. Tari Turner at a previous podcast talk about living guidelines for COVID and how that's been done in Australia with um live systematic reviews essentially being updated to look at the latest evidence around COVID. We, we kind of need that in infection control too um, because these guidelines are 
can be quite old. And even when a guideline gets updated, it's often looking at evidence from two years ago yeah. because of the time it takes to, to pull it all together and review it and then come up with a recommendation. So it's a bit like a textbook. You did that nice paper of Phil uh, looking at you know at guidelines and how current they are, and actually mm. you you had to exclude some some guidelines that are in current use. So the the current HICPAC uh, urinary tract infection guideline is actually a two thousand and nine guideline. Two thousand and nine, so yeah, it's a long that's time twelve ago. years out of date. Yeah, yeah, they would have been based on guidelines from uh, research from probably two or three years prior to that and longer. Yeah, so yeah. You know, and a good example of that, you know, we, we talked about so that we talked about touched on meatal cleaning quickly, and another another way to help reduce cowties is, or um, well, a not putting them in, in the first place. And I know you've done some work <laughs> around the Houdini type stuff. We might want to touch on that, and then getting them out yeah, yeah. Um, when they're no longer needed. Yeah. So they're, they're two big risk factors if people don't need them, and and if they're staying in every day, they stay in. There's a five percent increased risk of bacteria. So. Um, we need them out as soon as possible. And there's been lots of research in these two areas as well. Yeah, I mean, I was interested in why people put them in. And uh, to my embarrassment, I never fully wrote it up. It just went as an abstract. But basically, I found that I just did some qualitative interviews with nurses. And uh, and basically, they just wanted to put them in to help the patient. And they would manipulate the medical staff's view of why the patient needed a catheter because they wanted to put the catheter in if the patient was, say, was breathless and they didn't think they'd be able to make it to the toilet but they were really breathless or they were in mm. retention. And without thinking why they're in retention, it's post-surgery, they're maybe not perfusing, you know, the old thing turning mm. on the tap and, you know, getting to move a bit to, to actually get the perfusing to pass urine. No, they pop a catheter in, but then they'd stay in. Mm. And I can remember seeing patients in the staff restaurant, well, in the hospital restaurant, with their caster bag, and you chat to them and you say, oh, still got a caster in, why is that? And the guy goes, well, I'm not really sure. Should we go, yeah, let's go back to the ward and have a look. And... Mm read the notes and it says Catherine can come out when stable well he's just eating fish and chips in the hospital restaurant he's more stable than half the staff why has he still got a catheter in him we don't we just yeah. don't get him out and no you know there was another study i remember uh and it was a, it was a, oh, like, it was an american study i think and it was it asked or surveyed physicians about about whether they knew whether their patient had a catheter in or not I can't remember what it was a very low percentage yeah, yeah. um oh, yeah. Look, the same thing would happen if we asked yeah, yeah. I'm not not picking on physicians yet. Same thing would happen for for other occupational groups, I'm sure as well, because it's it just not haven't been at the forefront of people's mind as a risk factor for infection. And so I think if we change that, we might help that perception. We might change change perhaps the the importance of getting them out. I mean, I can remember going on a post surgical take ward round, and the consultants there. We see the patient, and as we're walking away from the bedside, I'm saying catheter. He goes, "No, she doesn't need one." I said, "Well, she's got one in. Can it come out?" Oh no, better keep it in. Mm. What? Yeah, <laughs> just not thinking about it. Somebody's already put it in, so therefore I don't need to make that decision to take it out. And yeah. you know, I, I I remember chatting to Jennifer Meddings a couple of years ago at a Shea Spring meeting, and um, basically they found across their ITUs they were not getting reductions in kilty. Um, and they weren't getting much change in practice. And what it turned out was that this is done in critical care areas in that they give them a set of guidelines and they just weren't following them. Mm. So what they decided to do was pick four domains and then give them three or four options in each of the domains, like you know uh, not putting them in and other, other alternatives and you know how to get them out more quickly and other pr more practical elements of how they would deal with the catheter. And they, they mm. basically had to choose, each critical care unit had to choose one of the interventions or give an option to choose one of the interventions in these four domains. 
And basically what they've done was give the highly trained professionals choice. And I wonder if there's an element of, of that in it, in that, you know, if you're telling a critical care nurse or a critical care intensivist what to do, they don't really like it much. But actually, if you give them options, then they may be more likely to be a bit more involved in the decision in that they, they've made the decision themselves yeah. rather than being told what to do. Yeah, look, and there's a degree of checklist, checklist fatigue as well. So mm. the whole concept of the reverse end is, you know, only put them in when you need them and then there's criteria on who needs them. Um, and, and, and yeah, a lot of that criteria is common sense. Um, but, you know, do you want another checklist? And, and, and just, just on that point, uh, you know, that you raised, Martin, and, and, and the same, same sort of issue on the checklist is there was a, again, Jennifer Mennings did a, a, a review looking at, uh, strategies to to prevent uh, counties by looking at things like automatic stop orders and reminder systems. So this was more of that sort of systems approach to to try and trigger uh, does this person still need a, a, a catheter in? And it showed. So this is about the decision making. And it showed that if you provide the sort of a right sort of system, um, that might be the authority for X or Y um, professional group to be able to take out a catheter. Um, that it helps improve these type of things or if there's a, a, an automatic stop order in place or if there's a policy that says empower someone to do it or there's an electronic reminder in the medical records all these things are ways in which I guess clinicians can be assisted to making that decision about does this person need a catheter if not let's get it out and when those catheters come out early uh, it's been shown that it reduces the risk of county so again it's, it's, um, it's finding the right solution I guess to your to your hospital facility. It's finding a nudge rather than a push, isn't mm. it? Because people don't mind being pushed, but they don't mind so much of a nudge, a suggestion. So and just being involved in the decision themselves, I, I, I think, uh, can make a big difference, really. But I, I, I do think there is a certain amount of acceptance that, well, if you're going to put a catheter in, the chances are they're going to get an infection, but they need the catheter. And sometimes that can be cultural. I mean, I remember the organisation I worked in, um, it did, it then became a merged organisation. We had two trauma wards, one on each site, and one mm. catheterised everyone routinely, mm. and the other catheterised no one unless they absolutely had to. And it was it was this perception of the nurses on one trauma ward that the patient's going to be in pain, therefore we've got to control the pain, therefore we've got to put a catheter in them. And woe betide the accident department nurse who turned up on the ward with the fractured neck of femur patient who didn't have a catheter in. Yeah. And yet on the other ward, aha, I've just got cramp. <laughs> Oh, can we keep this in the recording? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I've been doing a bit of exercise recently. It's so many of these, uh, yeah, so many the, these podcasts, uh, uh, podcasts uh, Martin. We've been sitting down too long. Uh, no, no, no. And, and the other ward actually had, uh, you know, you just didn't put a catheter in someone. It was deemed to be poor nursing care. So you do wonder if there's elements of culture in, in this sort of setting as well. Because one thing yeah. I didn't find was people putting in for incontinence as such and um, people putting in for labour-saving because that was not perceived to be a good thing to do. So that's, yeah. that's some progress, perhaps. I, I agree. And it really does need to be – culture is a really important thing. And tailoring it to your own um, culture and your own organisation is going to be different horses for courses – I did a, a trial in one hospital here in Australia and it was actually looking at um, electronic reminders as a point of care electronic reminder attached to the catheter bag and it flashed um, at a set interval to try and prompt both the patient and the nurses to think, does this, do I still need this catheter in? Um, and we did it on, um, I think, just 10, 10 different wards, um, one of which was ICU. And um, 
when we got the results and the analysis, it was um, it was sort of like, okay, this doesn't seem to make a huge difference. We did some qualitative um, work, um, and the outcome we're looking at is catheter duration in this instance. Did it actually reduce catheter duration? And we did some qualitative work, and when we explored that, when we actually went and spoke to the nurses and did some surveys and various other things, we found a very different culture uh, on, on one particular unit. In fact, it was the ICU. They have things binging in at them all day. And so they don't need another thing binging at them, telling them and flashing <laughs> yeah, yeah. at them. And so, um, you know, they, they provide that feedback quite frank and fearlessly, which was um, really welcomed. We went back to the analysis and went, okay, what happens if we take, so there was take this ward out just in terms of sensitivity analysis, we take this area out. So it was nine of the 10. It was a step wedge design. And uh, what happens oh, if you do like it? a step wedge? Oh, yeah, I know, Martin. And um, we found that uh, it was a difference. Um, now, that's not, how, that, that's not how the study was set up, so we can't claim too much from that. But if you're just looking at the nine of the 10 wards, there was a, a statistically significant reduction in catheter duration. So really that, that made us think a lot more about um, just how important um, thinking about the, the culture is and what's actually needed and, and wanted on a particular unit. Because... Um, mm. Might have a good idea, but it's not going to work. In other areas, yeah, yeah. We're, we're gangbusters. This is where I think qualitative research really helps, doesn't it? Talking mm. to people about why something might work and why something might not work. And, it, you know, if you'd done some interviews with staff saying, what do you think might help on here, on the critical care area, something else that goes bing is probably going to be flagged up as, well, that's really not going to help us and it's going <laughs> to right. get on our nerves. <laughs> yeah, look, it makes sense. In hindsight, it's a wonderful yeah. thing, isn't it? Because no, no, then we go, why did we even think about doing that? Why did we think about it? Yeah. But but actually, you know, you have to get some feeling of people's beliefs, really, because otherwise you're not going to convert them. And, and unless we convince people something is useful and practical and might make a difference, they're probably not going to do it. And so mm. therefore the implementation is, is, is likely to fail. So I think that was... <laughs> That was a really nice example, really. Mm, mm. What one, one of the other things that springs to mind uh, about Cowdies and, and uh, again, that question, why are they not getting much attention? Um, why are we not thinking about them too much? You know, measuring them is really difficult and really complex. Oh, yeah. And um, telling the difference and trying to differentiate the difference between a bacteria and a, and a true infection is time-consuming. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the priorities of any individual team, surveillance or infection control or, or epidemiologist you're going to ask the question is this a good use of my time or our team's time and resources so that's a that's a difficult one to answer i think we can really uh we need to really get better at how we measure these things and let's not really get caught up that we've got to get it 100 percent right all the time you know one of the one of the there's lots of different reasons why we do surveillance and lots of different characteristics that makes a good surveillance system yeah and of course you want something that's that's accurate but also you need something that's timely and feasible and practical and so we perhaps need to think about a a way to to do this type of surveillance in a more efficient way so that we can actually undertake it i mean i have to say i thought device utilization ratios were actually quite useful because they're quite cheap to do Mm. uh, quite quick to do and you can you can give feedback on well, this ward is using far more catheters than another comparable ward. Mm, mm. And give that data to the people on the two wards, and one might think, why well, are we using a lot more catheters than mm. that other ward? Um, and, uh, I mean, uh, on my unit, we had a 
healthcare assistants, um, so that's not a registered nurse, who would go around all the wards and on a random day each week and count the number of catheters. And there, were, there was some work from the States that just suggested this these one-off just doing the count mm. gives you a reasonable number of device days. And over a period of time, actually, you can you can drive down catheter utilisation ratios. Therefore, you are most more likely to be driving down QWERTY because I agree mm. with you. Trying to do true QWERTY surveillance would be incredibly time-consuming unless mm. uh, you know the labs come up with a new method of being able to analyse urine to give you a probability that this is that this urine tract or this urine mm. specimen is a QWERTY. But then, of course, you've got to rely on people actually sending you a specimen in the first place, mm. whether the quality of the specimen, etc., etc., etc. All the so other I'm, information I'm about, that doesn't get put on yeah, the forms, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm um, no, well, what, don't get me started on forms. I mean, they just write urine on it. Well, I can tell yeah. that it's yellow stuff in the tube. You know, why have you actually sent me the specimen? I mean, the number of the number of specimens I've seen going to the lab with uh, paraplegic written on it from a spinal unit. Well, that, you know, that's a sort of admission criteria. Yeah. Why have you actually sent this wounds for Bob or this stool specimen or whatever? I mean, there's there's a whole talk to be talked about on, that, yeah. on getting a decent specimen. I think it'd be you know this topic of Cali today. I guess was was a net chance to to touch on it um, and all those things that we we talked about from surveillance to stop orders to um, we haven't really talked about some of the other uh, insertion practices and maintenance practices um, out there either. Uh, it probably does warrant a, you know, some, some really delving into some of these ideas a little bit more and be good to get perhaps some speakers on this topic. It would, yeah. I mean, I'd love to get Jennifer Meddings on. I mean, I remember there's a nice paper by Manolovich from uh, I think Sanjay Saints Group where they actually observe some some practice. Now, they, you know, we maybe observe people putting cannulas, and you might say you're not doing that quite right. But when mm. we're actually inserting catheters, once you've been trained to do it, you generally do it on your own without anybody watching it or giving mm. you any feedback because you're dealing with an indelicate area on a patient, mm. and therefore it's not deemed to be a spectator sport. So mm. you're wondering actually how much poor practice actually sneaks back in because no one's actually giving you the little nudge did you realize you did that wrong yeah. or did you recognize that and and other things are more obvious but that really isn't obvious because in the Manolovich paper i think two-thirds of the patients had sub some form of suboptimal prox um, process going on where the mm. a, the aseptic field were breached and mm. the catheter's gone you know touched something else before going into the urethra etc cetera, etc cetera. and i wonder if there's an element there of assessment of competence we're not really thinking of yeah. yeah look absolutely i mean i i'm sort of thinking to when i was working in infectious diseases ward and it was a gastroenterology ward half and half and um we used to have a lot of patients with tpn and and uh on the gastro side and um, we had quite high infection rates, but we were the only place around that were doing this sort of outpatient TPN. And people bring them in, teach them how to do it, and they'd go home. And these people were going to be on patients going to be on TPN for the rest of their life, uh, for the most part. So preserving um, and minimising infection was absolutely critical. And you know we were really uncomfortable with the infection rates that we were having, and we actually started from scratch with. Let's let's go and go all through a competency program about how to do do small things from dressing changes through to setting up a TPM uh, infusion set properly. And one of the things that we did put in place was you had to be observed when you were hmm. uh, connecting and disconnecting a TPM line and when you were doing a dressing. And we, we put this really important cultural change in where it was okay to say, actually stop um, 
just observe something and you'd have a bit of a chat and you might have to throw away and start again or you might just change your gloves or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, A, that was a, you needed to have the, the team around you to, to be comfortable to do that. And, and we did. It took some time. It was, it was hard to do. But eventually it became second nature. You'd say to someone, I'm going to go and do this and someone would follow you in and I'd stand there and have a chat with the patient and um, watch what you were doing. And, and it was such a good safety process to put in place and the rates went down. I and mean, this is obviously all unpublished stuff, but it's just... It's, you know, it, it's anecdotal, but um, we, we, we went from having many, many infections uh, every couple of months to, to none. And we, we were really proud that over the course of, I think we got to sort of 18 months without having a single uh, patient with TB and getting mm. infection. Um, that works for both parties, doesn't it? Because yeah. the person doing the insertion gets some feedback, but actually the observers watching with a critical eye instead of just under somebody who's standing yeah. there, and they are probably spotting things that they may do themselves. So they, they actually cleans up their own act, if That's you like, right. in a way as well. Because you know nobody goes deliberately to adopt poor practice or no. reach an aseptic field. But maybe they don't actively recognise it, which is which is the this difference, is right. really. And, and I think that's great. And, this, and actually, in this instance too, it was because patients are going home having to do it themselves. You're teaching them how to do it. So by the end of a few days, you know, you'd be saying you wouldn't have you know your RN friend coming in with you. You'd you'd say to the patient, uh, "Now we've been teaching you for three days. Now I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong." Mm-hmm. Um, and they might be still reading it or looking at it, but that's okay. Um, it was empowering them as well to pick up that practice and when they came in six months later and they've been doing it for six months you'd say to them look you know if you see something you're not happy with call out as i'm doing it we'll stop and we'll do it again um mm. uh so that was a great example a bit hard for the cat you know we've, we've sort of diverted a little bit onto off oh, urinary catheters here but <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah but a bit, yeah. a bit, a bit it's hard with catheters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh we have a habit of doing that man but the principle's there, though. The, the, the observed practice principle is there, though. You know, and how mm. else can you assess somebody's competence? And generally, you get trained to put a catheter in, mm. and that's it. Nobody ever checks your competence ever again. And, you know, it's, it, I think, refreshers, if put in the right way, wouldn't necessarily be a bad yeah. thing. So, yeah, plenty to think about with catheters. Yeah, and thinking about, you know, you, you talked about a process measure there with, I guess, the, the catheter utilisation rate. Um, and this is sort of an idea... Uh, a rationale, I guess, for point prevalence type studies too. If you're just going to do something one specifically on UTIs, you might only do it a couple of times a year or two or three times a year. Hmm. But if you're putting in another um, process-related uh, measure and you're measuring that, for example, catheterization, and you see some benefit, then you might want to do a snapshot sort of uh, point prevalence type work on 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 CALTIs to see, you know, is this actually having any effect on surrogate markers with all the limitations that has but you know it, it still provides some kind of reassurance that um, perhaps it's making a difference to to a hard outcome in the end as well mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting you mentioned hap is the number one healthcare associated infection and, and urinary tract infection is mm. the number two mm. healthcare associated infection and all of the interventions that could reduce those infections are actually nursing yeah aren't they you know with hap it's getting people up moving getting their teeth cleaned mm. with urinary tract infection it's probably getting getting the hydration levels up nicely mm. and not putting catheters in and getting them out and a lot of these are nursing interventions and yet in infection prevention we spend a lot of time looking at the tip of the iceberg which is the surgical site infections mm. and the central line associated blood through infections we don't even seem to be quite so worried about peripheral line infections although you know we are mm. now i think i think certainly yeah. the mrsa problem in the uk helped us really get to grips with that one but you know that's the more technological 
things we're more concerned about and the and the more mm. i don't know low tech nursing interventions we, we're not quite so no. concerned about and possibly because we don't have the data yeah and it's a lot of things we don't even do any, it's right we don't do a lot of surveillance on we don't have the data on i mean respiratory pathogens viral pathogens would be a great example of that too i'm sure there's probably lots of respiratory viral pathogens that are caught up in and caught in healthcare but we don't do any surveillance on them um, well, there's certainly one respiratory pathogen that we're doing a fair amount of surveillance yes, on at the moment. Apart from but, uh, COVID, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it might it might be interesting to see if that changes people's mindsets to actually think about transmission of things like RSV in in mm. healthcare and and influenza and that sort of stuff. It was, you know, mm. that you're right. They're down the list, but maybe they won't be quite so down the list in the future. Maybe not. Maybe not. Well, man, as usual, it's always good chatting with you about. Uh, a topic that's passionate to I think both of you and I actually on this. On this Where did that half an hour go? Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm heading. I'm heading down the heading to be catheterized group, <laughs> I suppose, in the not too distant future. I don't know time. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't needed the loo in ten minutes, so that's good news. <laughs> well, there we go. Um, well. Let's wrap it up there, Martin. I think, and I think what we should do is get some some speakers in on 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 County on some of these specific topics. Yeah. We can really get into the nuts and bolts on some of those in a bit more detail. Yeah, I'll put some feelers out and see if we can get somebody. Well, thanks everyone for listening to us this evening and or this morning or whatever time of day it is that you're uh, listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our latest uh, episode of Infection Control Matters. It's bye from me and bye from me. I'm off to the loop. <laughs>